Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, New Zealand retained the America's Cup. We'll visit one of the country's biggest fish processing co-ops, and I'm at the once Verone Cork Dockyard to see what's happening at that facility now. Last month, the government announced that nine seafood companies were investing a total of nearly 5 million euros in their processes. The Department of the Marine, through their European Maritime and Fisheries Fund, gave nearly 1 million euros in grants to these companies. The Fishermen's Co-op at Castletown Bear in West Cork got 257,000. That will go towards an overall spend of 859,000 euros, which allayed the development of meagre exports. That's 10% of their overall business. Noel Sweeney caught up with John Nolan, the co-op's managing director. He showed him around the plant and taught him a bit about the megram and their popularity in Spain. Oh, so this is ready now for dispatching to Mercadona. That's, where's that's the way we'll receive it. Where's this all going? That'll be in Zaragoza now for Thursday night. They dispatch it in overnight to all their shops all over Spain. They have 1,500 shops in Spain and 20 in Portugal. Okay. Well, right? Well. So you can see all the information. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we're here at the Fisherman's Co-op here in Castleton Bear. And you received a nice investment lately. We did, uh, what you call it, like last year with COVID, we could see that the way fish was being bought in Spain by one of our, we supply Mercadona supermarkets, we're integrated suppliers. And people in Spain then, instead of buying fish six days a week, they went to doing their shopping only one day a week. So traditionally, Spain was always a buyer of fresh fish. So sitting down with Mercadona, we made a decision to invest about 800,000 to take megrams, which are a species of fish like, like a white sole, which 99.9% of all that species caught by the European Union fishing boats would be sold in Spain. So we made a decision that we would put in a production line that would allow us to get the Meg's kitchen ready. You say, what does that mean? That means that we take the head off, we take the fins off, we take the tail off. We would then IQF freeze that, which means that each species or each fish would be frozen individually, glazed, and they'd be put into bags of 600 grams, something similar to what Donegal catch do, what they do with breadcrumbs, but this would be just the fish. So that would be sold in the frozen section of Mercadona supermarkets. There'd be girls standing here all day, right? And what happens, like, fish comes in here, it goes through this machine, which shakes it like that, and it tries to get the fish to turn that way. Okay. Right if the fish is turned that way, the machine then, Fills the head instead of the guts, like you know, uh, right? Yeah, so okay. what the girl must do, when 95% of the fish will come out that way, and all she has to do is the fish that's that way is turn it. Or if you were doing mackerel, there could be one horse mackerel through it, or there could be a herring through it. So she take that out, she throw that down, and that go into the fish meal. Okay. So okay. after it does that, it automatically kicks it here. And the first thing the machine does then, it cuts the head off here with this blade and it flicks it over then to this blade and that takes the tail off. It then comes down here and the head and tail automatically go down here to go to the fish meal plant 
and then this takes the rest of the fish and they're all set like what you call it, at a certain angle and it takes the fish off in a butterfly fillet and all the other waste goes out there by water. Water is what drives these machines. We then bring the fillets around to go into a backpacker to be checked again for metal detection. We put two litres of salt water in with the fillets and that stops the fat oxidising. So it gives you, a, two years later if you defrost that, it comes out as the day it left here fresh. Absolutely unbelievable. Oh. We used to have machines on here then that would take that butterfly fillet and turn them into two fillets and take the skin off. You go through a hundred ton here in a day. The fresh market is, is starting to disappear. In Ireland, Tesco's completely dropped their fresh fish counters. So I suppose that was, they saw that the, the way people's shopping habits were changing compared to what they normally do. Where would we see your produce? I uh, saw Megrum's like is, uh, is a white soil for some reason in Ireland, even though this is like a lovely, this maybe a poor man's black soil. But it is a good product, like, but um, it was something that the Irish people and French, Germans, Dutch didn't really eat at all, but the Spanish always had, had very good, like, really like that. But we also see like that things like monkfish there now, like we'll, we, we're trying to get further down the line is, instead of the fishermen goes out fishing and we are the first sale. We're trying to see can we add value. We've often did this in pelagics before where we produce herring fillets or we produce mackerel fillets and they'd be sold to people that would put them into cans with sauces or that they'd put them into in the case of herrings they'd make uh, roll mops which is marinated in a vinegar and a sugar solution with different types of spices so we're trying to see can we add the value in Castlenone Bear can we uh, create the jobs that will try and sustain us more that we just won't be dependent on the fresh price today, that we'll be able to actually process it and, and be able to hold it in stock if necessary. <laughs> so when, when a board lands, the first thing you must do is we take it up and each box of fish must be, must be weighed. Mm. So to actually start the weighing process electronically, we have to input the name of the board. So we, we pull that up. The next question it asks us then is, when did the boat go fishing? So we have to put that date in. And you're weighing the fish today, so it assumes that's the date that the boat stopped fishing. The next thing we must do then is we must put in the type of gear the boat was fishing with. So if he was fishing per seining, or he, if he was mid-watering, or if he was fishing with a single net, or if he was fishing with a hook, or, or, or a gillnet. And then we must also put in then the ISIS area he was fishing. Before that was FAO 27, which is the whole Atlantic. Now it is broken up into seven areas and then about 10 subsections. So when you then print, it gives a label and that label will be totally traceable. And if you have the codes, it will tell you the name of the skipper, the boat that caught the fish, the day he was fishing, the area he, he was. 100% traceable. traceable. The fish then, when it, tra it transfers into, into the factory where it's going to be further processed, that information has already got into the terminal I'm showing you there. The megrams minus 200 grams are put into 5 kilo polystyrene boxes with ice, and the megs 700 grams plus are put into 8 kilo polystyrene boxes with ice. The next thing then that happens like is that it then goes through a metal detector which guarantees that there is no metal in the fish. You'd say, how could there be metal in the fish? But sometimes you have Spanish boats fishing with long lines, so they could catch a fish and there could be hooks stuck in it. 
And if you don't, when you're supplying Mercadona, you must remove that hook just to make sure that you've no metal. Or when the boats are at sea and they're gutting the fish, they're gutting with a knife. And just in case a, a piece at the top of the knife broke off, uh, we'd pick up the metal. Any piece of metal at all, the machine is so sensitive and we never allow anything to go out that hasn't been metal detected. Um, and then it goes like to Mercadona where it's sold directly on, on, onto the fish counter with full traceability. So the label that's on the box, you can take that off and you put on a traceability board. So when you go into a supermarket in Spain, uh, we say it could be in Valencia, and you were on holidays, you could go in and you could actually look up and see in the traceability board that the megs that are in the counter in front of you or the monk or the witches came from Castletown Bay or were caught by the Kishimar on the 5th of April or the 5th of May or whatever the date was, the area, and that type of traceability is what exists now like in, in the Irish fishing industry, like that everything is totally traceable. When we do business in Ireland, then like we, we would supply people whose job then is to supply the hotel chain or like there could be people like good fish like there would be supplying tesco's or we do people like ocean pat in dublin that supplies super value yeah we do morgans in neen or in or in and just the border not in all meat and they supply done stores and so like we don't supply those restaurants or those supermarkets in ireland but people that we do supply would supply a lot of the the, the pubs the restaurants the the the, the, the retail trade um, and we're delighted like, to see Irish fish in, 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 in Irish shops. Megrams, I haven't heard of megrams before. Right? No, no, because that, that it's, it's a species of fish, like it's like a black sole, mm. but it's, it's the poor man's black sole. <laughs> in Spain they're called gallo, and that species caught by every fishing boat in Europe, 99.9% of that species will go to Spain. Do the Irish do we appreciate you know, fishing? We, in Ireland, yeah, definitely we're getting to eat more fish. Obviously, our history was like in Good Friday, like or every Friday of the week you were forced to eat it. And of course, if you tell an Irishman he has to do something he doesn't want to, <laughs> myself, like we eat Finn and Hattie when we were kids growing up, which was smoked haddock, like in a in a, in a, a white sauce with with onions and potatoes. And I think people now are really starting to become good at cooking enjoying it um, and actually looking to try and try different species and they've forgotten about the fridays well there's no there's no doubt about that like obviously fish as a food is very nutritional like it's very very what you call it like safe like there's we just like to maybe try and get people more and more int- interested in it Noel Sweeney with John Nolan at the Castletown Bear Co-op on St. Patrick's Day, New Zealand retained the America's Cup in Auckland with a 7-3 race victory over the Challengers Italy. Morris O'Connell is a professional sailor, a sailmaker and RTE sailing analyst. I asked him about that New Zealand victory. It was a surprise that the Italians were that competitive, Fergal. I mean, they sailed absolutely brilliantly and Jimmy Spittle and Francesco Bruni, the helmsman, of uh, Prada Pirelli Lunarossa did an, a stunning job in the pre-start match racing moves and they really outsailed the Kiwis for a lot of the races but there was a certain sense of the inevitable because whenever the Kiwi boat got past the Italian boat they just streaked away into the distance so there's no doubt that the Kiwi boat was faster but the Italians did a super, super job of running it that close. Now, the final score of 7-3, you could say, wasn't that close, but 
it probably was closer than a lot of people thought. And before the finals, people were predicting a 7-0 whitewash and it was nowhere near that. So it was great to watch. But everybody thought beforehand that the New Zealand boat, even though it hadn't been in a lot of competition, was the faster boat. Yeah, that's right. And and there was very simulations run where, you know, people were, were attempting to assess the Kiwi boat speed when they were out doing their training exercises. And they had a smaller foil package, which basically meant that when they got foiling, there was less drag and the boat could ultimately go faster in a straight line. But a lot of the final was sailed in relatively light wind conditions. So maybe that advantage was negated a certain amount. But it is true that, you know, anybody will tell you that boat speed wins races, not tactics. And um, ultimately, boat speed prevailed in the end, as it always does in the America's Cup. The, the, the way the things were going, it changed almost halfway through. At, after six races, it was 3-3. And I, if I remember correctly, in every one of those races, whoever got the lead at the start won the race. But it changed afterwards. The New Zealanders overtook on the course a couple of times. Yeah, that's right. What, and, what was going on there? Well, I think that you know again as francesco bruni said in one of the post match press conferences it was trying to drown a fish underwater just trying to keep that kiwi boat behind them so like when you have a boat behind you that's absolutely ripping you can pull every tactical move in the book to try and prevent you getting past but you know ultimately you just have to make a, a tiny error of judgment which everybody does even at the highest level in sport uh, and they slip past and you know, you could criticise the Italians perhaps for, for not covering at critical times. But honestly, you know, it's so, so difficult when, when you've got a boat behind you that, that's really quicker. And, you know, in one of the races, we just saw them split tacks and mm. one wind shift, the Kiwis passed and, and then they were gone, you know. So, it, it, you know, it, it was very, very difficult for the Italians to, to try and prevail. All of the people involved were pretty unflappable, including especially Peter Burling, who is the New Zealand skipper. We're just going to play a small clip of him after the race. Oh, mate, um, absolutely unreal. And, you know, I think coming back to the chase boat and just seeing all the people involved in this campaign over three or so years, you know, how many Kiwis are out here supporting the, the event again. You know, we've had messages from everyone, from the Prime Minister to high school kids to... You know, just about anyone you can think of of support, and it just means the world to us as a team. Yeah, hey, Pete, we've got uh, Jimmy Spittle and Francesco Bruni listening in. Would you uh, like to say something to the lads? Yeah, congrats on a, a great series. You know, it's obviously been really hard fought, and I uh, really uh, love, love racing against you guys. And I think, uh, you know, from all of us here at Team New Zealand, we'd just like to say, um, yeah, well done and, and great racing. Thanks again. They're pretty unflappable, especially Peter Burling. Yes, I mean... I suppose the Kiwi sailors are notoriously taciturn and even the, you know, the all black rugby team, you know, they, they don't appear to display human emotion very often. And I think that contributes to the aura of New Zealand sports people. Um, but certainly uh, Peter Burling is a cool, cool cat. Um, but, you know, um, Jimmy Spittle is counterpart, the, the Prada Pirelli Lunarossa helmsman, was also extraordinarily calm and their heart rate monitors were on display on the screens for us to see. Oh, really? Okay. And, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the amount of data, I mean, it was an unbelievable America's Cup 
because the amount of data now available to viewers off the boat is extraordinary. And we could look at their heart rates even in very, very high pressure maneuvers. And um, the, the, the calmness was extraordinary in, in, in these guys. So New Zealand will hardly host this again next time in New Zealand, will they? Well, that is a big question now, Fergal, because it, it's no secret that there were, it was a real struggle for New Zealand to host it because, first of all, it costs an enormous amount of money. Secondly, the global pandemic would have had an enormous impact on their main sponsor, the Emirates Airline, obviously. Um, and I guess, you know, there, there, there is a public debate in, in New Zealand as to the value for money. So, um, you know, there, there's been a lot of speculation about whether the cup will be defended in New Zealand or whether they will potentially look at other locations. And I think that's a very live discussion right now. One thing that would intrigue most people about this is the business model as to how it was run. It was all free to air. There's no pay per view. Everything was free for the spectator. How did they make that pay? Yeah, I mean, it, it was brilliant. You know, we were all up at three o'clock in the morning watching it live streaming on, on YouTube. And now there were paywalls for different parts of the world. I saw some comment on social media that, you know, in America, you couldn't watch it uh, for free. So um, I think the, the business model for sure needs to be looked at in terms of the rights for the cup and, and how it can be profitably or break even run. So I think that's one of the areas that they're going to have to look at in terms of how this model um, actually works in order to produce a viable cup. I mean, the next, I suppose, business and commercial aspect of it is, you know, the next cup. They've already announced the challenger of record, which effectively is the agreed challenger that the New Zealanders accept initially. And that's been INEOS Team UK, the UK team that was knocked out in the the challenger series and they have broadly agreed principles around trying to reduce the costs for competitors to enter and compete in the competition so for example they're going to limit the number of new boats to um to one whereas you could build two new boats uh, for this series and that's each team can build two new boats so the last uh, series, Fergal, you could build two new boats, but for the next one in 2024, if it is in 2024, you're going to be only allowed to build one boat. So that itself is a massive cost reduction. And then they reintroduced the nationality clause, which is big news for me because, you know, the, the America's Cup um, went through a, a period of deep soul searching after the New Zealanders defended the Cup in 2000. And then the Swiss billionaire Ernesto Bertarelli of the Alinghi Syndicate basically poached and hired Russell Coots, Brad Butterworth and a number of top New Zealand sailors. And it turned into a fully professional guns for hire type of sport. But now for the next cup in 2024, they've agreed, like literally signed the agreement at the finish line of the race the other day that there would be a 100% nationality rule. So all sailors of future teams will have to be nationals of the challenging country. So it's going to refer revert to a kind of a nation against nation competition with, with some exceptions for emerging nations and, and stuff. So like that, that's very, very exciting. And it'll take away 
the um, you know the proliferation of lots of sailors from different countries sailing on the one boat, and it probably reverts it to probably what it was a couple of decades ago. Morris O'Kong. Last week, I was in the Cork Terminal in Cove, hearing about a new service ship being commissioned there by Mainport Marine. When I was there, I met Liam Cotter. He's the general manager for the Doyle Shipping Group Repair Department. He told me about the work they carry out in the terminal and about its history. It was the biggest shipyard in the Republic of Ireland. We're here at the moment in what is Cork Terminal now, Doyle Shipping Group Cork Terminal. It was uh, Cork Dockyard and prior to that it was Verome Cork Verome Dockyard. People will think Verome Cork Dockyard closed in the 1980s, but here we are, a lot of business going on. Yeah, uh, we closed 84, to the best of my recollection. Uh, we went, we came back in here in 85, took it off, uh, was hiring it from the receiver. Late 90s, Damon got interested in the place and they were looking for a Cork connection. So they brought Doyles on board with them. Uh, so that reopened and kind of solidified the future of the place because it took it over the hands of the receiver. It's a very big space here, just by Cove. What's here at the moment? At the moment, we've managed to maintain the major workshop, major workshops and stores here in the yard, plus the graving dock, which will take a 10,000 ton vessel. It's 160 metres by 21 metre beam. Um, so we have a substantial ship repair facility. We also maintain, we have held the old machine shop. So we have all those facilities for on-site machining. Uh, machining, and if you have an issue with uh, stern tubes or stern shafts, uh, gearbox uh, couplings, things like that, you know. So we will probably have some of the, whilst it's old, we have some of the biggest um, metal machining sh- uh, lades and that in the country you know. What kind of ships do you deal with here? Predominantly um, we probably have Irish naval vessels. One of them, the Eliekna, was actually built here? That's correct yeah, uh, it was one of the last ships uh, to come off the sipper here. It was um, Eliekna and then you, I think you had the B&I, it was either Connacht or Munster. They were the last two vessels to be built there back in the early 80s. It is a, a big space. You you do have plans for it? We have. We have 43 and a half acres here. Um, obviously, with green energy on the horizon, along with everyone else, uh, one, one, one has to diversify to survive these days. So we're, we're constantly looking to see if we can get a foothold in the green energy side of things, which would obviously be wind farms at sea, because we, we you know, you have a, a point where you can import and drop, you can construct and tow to, to, end, to the end position. In wind farms, there is a big shore side operation as well. These things have to be brought in on big ships. They have to be assembled. You have to have deep enough water to get them in. That's the, that's, that's the thing. You, you have to have a kind of a turnkey a facility where you can bring it in, destructed, tow them out, constructed to a degree so that you have minimal construction on site because of the, the nature of seawater. I understand there's no facility in Ireland where these can be assembled at the moment. They have been constructed on the, in Belfast okay. and towed into position. So there's obviously ourselves here. Uh, you have, I think, fines of some have putting a facility in for it. So there is facilities in the country for doing it, but at the moment, apart from Arklow Bank, 
there was there, there there are no other sea wind farms in place but there is there lots, of lots lots of plans mostly most of them on the east coast because of the protection of the the sea isn't as rough but and it's also very shallow there i shallow yeah but the the expert experts in wind would prefer uninterrupted wind so that puts them on the south or west coast prevailing winds here are south southwest so we would be in an ideal position. Do you see all that happening in the next few years? It has to happen. Probably more 2030, 2040. But I think it's a, it is a no-brainer that it will happen. Jerome Cork Dockyard has a long history in Cork. It was an iconic place. Are you hoping to get back there again? It's always the ambition to get it back up uh, somewhere. I don't think we'll see shipbuilding here again. But I think we will manage the ship repair facility, general engineering. Uh, we have in the last couple of years had some big projects in connection with Lieber, shipping out uh, fully erect uh, ship to shore uh, cranes and RTGs. And, um, you know, we've shipped uh, three, three fully erect uh, ship to shore cranes in excess of a thousand tonne crane ashore that puts a container from the shore to a ship, from a ship to the shore. They were in excess of a thousand tonne, the three of them each uh, assembled, and they were taken from, from our yard here, put onto a ship, secured on the ship, and the ship sailed to Puerto Rico. So, I mean, I mean again, that is not a, a simple job. So it, it brought back a lot of the old skills that were required here in the past, and uh, it worked very successfully. Liam Cotter of the Doyle Shipping Group in the Cork Terminal. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're lucky enough to be anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe.